Documenting key patient and demographic information within a patient care report is not only important from a billing and medical legal standpoint, it is a key part of delivering high quality patient care. In today's board and caller keynote presentation, we review best practices when documenting all aspects of a patient interaction. We're glad you joined us for today's podcast. Now, let's get started. Good day, folks, and welcome to today's keynote presentation on clinical documentation training for air medical and ground emergency medical services, painting the picture for operational and billing success. You know, when we detail information on a patient care report, it's important to always do our best to paint a picture, just like an artist would if he's looking at a landscape. And the trip record must paint a picture of the patient's condition and truly be consistent with the documentation found in other supporting medical records, including information that's reflective of the physician's certification statement, if in fact you're using this during a non-emergency transport. We hear so much about medical necessity out there these days, don't we folks? And really CMS defines medical necessity as this. It's ambulance transportation, which is covered when the patient's condition requires the vehicle itself and or the specialized services of the trained ambulance personnel. A requirement of coverage is that the needed services of the ambulance personnel were, were provided and clear clinical documentation in the patient's medical record validates, big word, validates their medical need and provision. The patient's condition as well as changes in that condition and the treatment provided must be in the record of the ambulance service run sheet. So what do we hope to accomplish with today's podcast? One, we want to learn practical tips for writing high-quality PCRs. We want you to understand how your PCR affects the overall billing process. And we want to identify changes you can make today to help improve reimbursement. You know, there's a, a big misnomer out there that if people have commercial insurance, their ambulance transport is automatically covered. And that is not the case. Even if there is an ambulance service clause or transport clause within the coverage, it has to meet medical necessity. And it's your billing office's responsibility to determine if the trip can legally and compliantly be billed based on the documentation you provide. So when writing a report, we have to look globally, look at the big picture. Everyone contributes, meaning the dispatchers, the call takers, the folks who receive the initial request uh, for your services. The first responders, those could be uh, physicians and nurses at an urgent care facility. It could be bystanders on a highway, family members at a home. Those are your first responders. That information needs to be included in your report. The caregivers, the folks who are probably listening to this podcast right now, those are the medics, the flight nurses, the EMTs, and post-incident, your CQI reviewers. They are important as well to include in all good, sound documentation practices. Now, there are some rules of the road, and it's important that you follow these. One, document before, during, if possible, and I understand it's not always possible, and immediately after any incident. I need you to document successful and unsuccessful interventions. Please include the details and be objective, not subjective. I ask that you never embellish a report and never copy and paste a narrative from one PCR to another. 
Yes, I know. We have patients we see on a regular basis with the same complaint, nearly the same vitals, but never copy and paste. That's a big no-no as far as the Medicare folks go. Write your report while details of the incident are fresh in your mind because your memory may and probably will fail you if you don't write the report soon after the incident occurs. So when we talk about your memory, I'm going to give you a little quiz. And I hope that, in fact, some of you may get this right, and many of you will probably miss it because the old adage applies here. The devil is in the details. So I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to ask you a question. And let's see how many of you can get the answer right. Here we go. So here's the paragraph, and take it in and listen to it all. You're the pilot aboard a 737-700 aircraft flown by Southwest Airlines. Flight 435 is traveling from Pittsburgh to Denver with a 30-minute layover in Dallas. There are 240 ticketed passengers, but only 235 are aboard when the, page, the plane's door closes. There are also 1,800 pounds of luggage on board, as well as two dogs and a cat. The aircraft will be reaching a cruising altitude of 37,000 feet and will have an average ground speed of 522 miles per hour. The crew consists of six airline professionals, the plane arrives safely on the first leg of its journey to Dallas seven minutes early. The layover is unremarkable where the flight picked up 18 new passengers and deplaned 21 before heading to Denver. Lots of information there. No different than you would have at an accident scene with multiple patients. You have information coming with, at you left and right. So based on the information I just read to you, let me ask you one single question. What's the pilot's name? Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh, I know the pilot's name, while others aren't. I'll let you know the pilot's name at the end of the presentation, but I'm betting many of you um, don't know the answer to that question. So back to, back to base here, who's reading your PCR? Well, your partner, hopefully, your receiving facility staff at the hospital you took the patient to, Possibly your supervisor, your medical director, so he may be looking at it from a, uh, a quality assurance standpoint or may, might be using it for a case review. Surely the patient and or their family may look at it, law enforcement, your billing office, and hopefully not an attorney, uh, a claims pro a processor at an insurance company, uh, a Medicare or Medicaid auditor may have chance to lay eyes on it, local, state, and national folks may also be looking at it. So there's many entities that can look at your report. And that's why it's extremely important that you write a good detailed report. Now, I'm not suggesting, folks, that you have to write a thesis. But writing a good report is not quantity, it's the quality of the report. And that's what we hope to touch on today. So there are seven key areas that we're going to talk about. They are dispatch and pre-arrival, what you need to include in the documentation there. The at scene and initial contact the loading and transport, the handoff at the destination and information you should include in your report regarding the handoff. We're gonna talk a bit about patient signatures. That seems to be an element that confuses a lot of people. We're gonna talk about demographics and documents and finally, crew signatures and credentials. So let's start with dispatch and pre-arrival. Recording the details around dispatch, noting non-emergency transports, and documenting timing and mileage. So the question you first have to ask yourself and include on your report is how were you dispatched? Many areas across the country use response level or transport modes. Please make sure that's included. 
Was the dispatch reason, uh, what was the dispatch reason? What was the patient's condition? Include the EMD code if it is used. Were you delayed in transporting? And please tell us why. Poor road conditions, heavy traffic, uh, vehicle problems. Those things should all need to be included um, in your report. And if it's a non-emergency transport, is your communication center involved in the process? Because the communication center does play a very critical role, specifically for call intake. And on non-emergency transport, this is an opportunity for the dispatch center to screen medical necessity and ensure a patient receives the appropriate level of service. In these cases, the dispatch people should probably request the PCS and a phase sheet prior to dispatch of the ambulance service. Now, we should never withhold that if there's a question, but in cases of a non-emergency or a scheduled transport, try to get as much of that paperwork out of the way as you can beforehand. And it also gives the call taker a chance to review the insurance and prior authorization requirements so they can make sure they get the patient, one, the proper uh, transport modality and it's covered under their specific insurance. When we're transporting a patient, it's also important to make sure we have accurate time stamp uh, if we're using our medical data terminals, make sure you're providing accurate times rounded to the tenth of a mile. Uh, accurate odometer readers, reading, excuse me, record out of the shoot odometer readings for ground ambulance and for air ambulance. Make sure you're using your satellite tracking system for the com for computing mileage. Okay, moving on to key area number two. Uh, this is the at the scene and the initial contact. So when you're at the scene, what do we need to see on the patient care report? Well, describe the scene. Tell us what you're seeing there. Snow-covered highway, um, house in poor condition, patient found in the backyard. Um, there's could, a lot of elements come into play here. So describe the scene as best you can. Um, evaluate the patient's current complaints. Tell us the details of the symptom, the problem, including the location, the duration, the severity, and the quantity. And, and also include how, what, when, where, and why. And I'll touch on this in just a few moments. It's also important to obtain the patient's past medical history. And I'll use the word pertinent past medical history. Um, you know, it's 2019 and we have a patient who might be, uh, might have a fractured elbow just per se. Um, we don't necessarily need to have to know that the patient had uh, gallbladder surgery back in 1967. If it's pertinent, include it. Uh, when in doubt, include it, but be smart about it. You don't need to go over the top with it. Identify the initial contact and use common language in the report. No 10 codes, no abbreviations, no acronyms, anything like that. When you begin your interventions, you begin your assessment. Document your findings well in your report. Document treatments and any interventions done prior to arrival, such as if the bystanders were started had started CPR prior to your arrival. When you, when you perform interventions, please document the justifications for the interventions. And this is especially important for use of the cardiac monitor or when you're starting an IV just to keep vein open. Document the patient's uh, current condition and then prepare for transport. For non-scene and facility pickup, we want to make sure we not only document the patient's current condition, but ask and document why the patient accessed the particular hospital today. Include treatments that may already be provided and ask, inquire of the staff, why is the patient going from hospital A to hospital B? If the patient's needs services not available at hospital A, uh, 
then by all means document what type of services and why they, they cannot be provided at point A. And document reasons why the facility requested patient be transported by ambulance. Now for hospital to hospital transport, Medicare believes most hospital to hospital transports should be billed at the non-emergency level. In these cases, a PCS, a physician certification statement, would be required. Surely, if life or limb is threatened, proceed with the patient care and transport. We can worry about the PCS later. But as much as you can, please get the PCS upfront before you transport the patient. We also need you to document the current patient condition and again, ask why the patient accessed the healthcare system and include the treatments already provided. Finally, Again, ask why the patient is moving from point A to point B. If the services aren't available at point A, document what type of services the patients require and why they not, cannot be provided at hospital A. <clears throat> and, and finally, as we did with the other non-emergency calls, document why the reasons why the facility requested the patient be transported by ambulance. Refusals, now refusals, uh, are, are very touchy and they're something you need to be very concerned about. Refusals are critical and need to be well documented in each and every case from both a medical legal standpoint and a billing standpoint. So if you have a patient who does refuse, make sure you assess as much as you can, you can and detail that refusal um, as much as you can into the patient care report. So let's move on to loading and transport of the patient. Things that we need to include on the report. One, how was the patient moved to the stretcher? Were they moved in a specific manner? Did they walk? Did they ambulate on their own? Did they have to be moved by a long, by a long backboard or some other means? And does the patient require any special positioning during transport? And if so, why? Is the patient unable to tolerate transport in a seated position? If so, why? Tell us why. So when we talk about supporting that medical necessity, we wanna talk about who, meaning who is the patient, a little overview of the patient, what are the circumstances that called you to the patient today, where's the patient found or located, that's important when it should be included in your report, why, why are you providing the specified treatment and intervention, and how, how are you transporting the patient to the hospital? These are all key elements of any quality patient care report. So when we're transporting the patient, it's important to document all interventions we've stated earlier, vitals and treatments, as well as any missed interventions. Question, did you transport the patient to the closest appropriate facility? If you're diverted or patient request, document the reason for the diversion and also include the name of the original facility you were transporting the patient to. Of course, record your abdominal reading and again, air medical services should include uh, document their um, air miles based on their tracking system. So what are the modalities of transport? Well, we know it as basic life support. And from our standpoint, uh, probably about 40% of your calls are truly just BLS calls. Uh, and this includes the provision of medical, medically necessary supplies and services and BLS ambulance transportation as defined by the state where you provide the transport. Uh, an emergency response is one that at time you are called, you respond immediately. A BLS emergency is an immediate emergency response 
in which you begin as quickly as possible to take the steps necessary to respond to the call. About 60% of an ambulance services calls are advanced life support level one. And these are, as mentioned, the most frequent calls where an ALS intervention or ALS assessment is documented and ties to the level of dispatch priority. You see how we're looping dispatch back in as a key element of any good quality patient care report. And then three to 5% of your annual calls are truly critical calls, which we term advanced life support level two, ALS two. This is where we give three full medication administrations or same or different medications, uh, and we deliver them IV push or bolus only, or any one of these procedures, such as manual defibrillation, cardioversion, endotracheal intubation, cardiac pacing, chest decompression, or an intraosseous line. There are several others as well, but I think you get the general um, gist of ALS too. Pain. Pain should be well documented on every chart. I can't uh, overstate this uh, enough. One, make sure we know the severity or the pain scale. Most electronic patient care reports um, mandate that you choose the pain scale, one being very little pain, 10 being the worst pain of the individual's life. Tell us about the description. Is it dull, sharp, throbbing? Uh, the location of the pain. It's not good enough just to say the patient's having abdominal pain. Tell us the quadrant. Those are important. The patient's having chest pain. Is it originating in any one location uh, on their chest? What was the patient doing for the onset? What was happening when uh, the pain began? He or she was shoveling snow. They were sitting at home in their recliner. These are all important uh, factors. What was the duration? Does the pain still occurring when you arrive? Uh, or did, was the pain alleviated shortly after they called 911? Does anything make the pain worse? Um, bending over, taking a deep breath. And is it relieved by anything at all? A nitro tab or just general rest? And don't forget, remember your PQRST scale that you learned in all your training, your provocation, your quality, your region, the severity and timing. These are all key elements that you should include when you're describing pain on your patient care report. Now, when we're documenting mental status, also an important factor, make sure we document the alert and oriented scale, the GCS, uh, the onset, onset of any mental status change, Tell us about the normal baseline value for the patient, additional assessment findings if there are any, and if there are any delayed responses um, that are out of the ordinary. So maybe a patient may not be able to reason things out well uh, with normal questions, such as what day of the week it is, who's the President of the United States, um, and make sure you make note of those in your report. So just a little tip for you, um, when we talk about um, detailing information report, there are certain catchphrases that you should always, always try to avoid. And one of those catchphrases is, we're transporting patient for a higher level of care. Really including that doesn't tell us a whole lot. It's really better to state what type of patient care, uh, what type of care the patient requires, and why they cannot receive the specified care at the sending facility. So just simply to state transport for a higher level care is really not good enough, folks. Again, please use caution with abbreviations. Try to avoid those as much as possible. Here's another catchphrase to avoid. Patient is bed confined. Uh, it's probably better to describe patient 
it's the patient's mobility or immobility status, and provide details of what, patient, what the patient can and cannot do, and include the reasons why. To, to simply state bed confined, again, is not, is not good enough and should be avoided as much as possible. Patient requires O2, another catchphrase we see a lot of. You know, hey, have you been to the malls and the sidewalks lately around America? Lots of folks out there walking around with oxygen on. Doesn't necessarily mean they're in a critical state, um, but you're typically seeing them when they're unable uh, to regulate their own oxygen and their SATs are down. So just to state you're transporting because the patient requires oxygen, again, just not good enough. And a big catch-all, how many times have you heard this dispatch from your 911 center or you arrive on scene and the patient's family tells you this? The patient complains of generalized weakness. In these cases, it's best to document the why the patient is weak and what is causing it, and also doc document what the weakness prevents the patient from doing. So, again, these catchphrases, transport for a higher level of care, patient is bed confined, patient requires O2, Patients complains of general, patient complains of generalized weakness. You should try to avoid those as much as possible. Now, let's moving on to handoff at the destination. Talk a little bit about this and the information that you should include in your report regarding the handoff. So please document that you safely, hopefully, unloaded the patient and transferred the patient to the assigned room. Note that you gave a verbal, verbal report to staff and if possible, this is where you start the signature process from staff members and or the patients. And make sure that in all cases, you leave a copy of the run sheet with the staff. Key area five, patient signatures. This is a, a, a huge one and I recognize, uh, I don't live in a uh, fairy tale world. I recognize it's very challenging at times to get patient signatures and one that you must sometimes work at to obtain. Um, attaining a patient signature is a safeguard of the Medicare Fraud and Abuse Prevention Program. It's not something that Medicare is just asking us if we can. They want signatures because of a few bad eggs out there that have spoiled it for the many over the years. So they want some verification that you actually did transport a patient. So you need a signature by the patient or on behalf of the patient if the patient is unable to sign. Uh, a signature can be obtained after the transport, but that takes time, and as they say, time is money. So you ask yourself, can the patient sign? Is the patient physically and men mentally capable of signing? Are they conscious? Are they alert and oriented? Do they have full use of their dominant hand and arm? And are they, are not, and they not receiving any invasive ALS interventions that would prohibit them from signing? And if you have good responses to these questions, then please get the patient's signature. So questions were asked often is, must the patient's signature be legible? And the answer to that is no. Patient's signature does not have to be legible. And if the patient signs with only an X, document on the PCR signature sheet that you witnessed the patient signing for him or herself. So what if the patient cannot sign uh, if in those cases, get your signature from on your signature form from a family member or a guardian. Um, that, that will surely suffice from a billing standpoint. If not, document and get a signature from a facility staff member if possible, and make sure in all cases it is dated. 
Key area number six, that demographics and documents. When we're filling out a report, there's some critical information you have to stay on top of. Things like spelling the patient's name correctly. I recognize you have some patients with pretty significant last names. Not always the easiest thing to do. Try as best you can. Document the date of birth, the mailing address, the phone number, insurance information, and be careful when recording the insurance information that you write down the uh, policy and group numbers correctly. Please document the location of the patient pickup. Was it a home, a highway, a business address? And if possible, include the patient's social security number if it, and, and, or the Medicare number if it's different from the social security number. Other forms that you may need is, of course, the face sheet, uh, the physician certification statement, and in very, 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 I'll under say that again, very rare cases, the advanced beneficiary notice. And there seems to be some confusion about that. So the PCS is required by Medicare for non-emergency transports. I want you to ask the sending facility for a staff for a copy before you leave with that patient, provided it's not, provided it's not an emergency situation. Medicare does consider most hospital-to-hospital -hospital transports to be non-emergent, so you will need a PCS, Physician Certification Statement, completed. And that uh, information uh, on the PCS needs to detail the patient's name, the date of service, the reason for the ambulance, it needs to be signed uh, by the physician or the nurse. The signature needs to be legible, and if it's not, ask the signer to print his or her name and, uh, and their credentials. ABNs, we hear a lot about ABNs. Please, from a 911 standpoint, you never need ABNs. ABNs are rarely appropriate for ambulance services. If used, only should be used in non-emergency situation, and it's never used when a patient is under duress. Here's some most common required uses of ABNs, and they're pretty far-fetched as you can tell. One, an air transport provider when ground transport is safe and effective for the patient. Two, when a patient is being transported to a hospital for service that can, that can be more economically provided in their residence or a skilled nursing facility. In those cases, you should get an ABN, but most, in many cases, the vast majority of cases, I should say, those are few and far between. Key area seven, crew signatures and credentials. <clears throat> now, uh, I assume that your ambulance when it responds has more than one person on it. And typically with two, I would think would be the, uh, the standard uh, format, uh, two crew members. My question to you is, Does if you're writing the report, do you share it with your crew member before you submit it? And if you don't, you should. Uh, who knows down the road if that report comes into um, uh, some sort of uh, legal proceedings. Um, you wanna make sure both persons have had a say and understand what was written in that report before it's submitted. So um, that's imperative that you do that and make sure you include your credentials if not automatically added by your PCR software. All assessments, vitals, and interventions should be included as well, and the name of the person who performed each of these on the patient. So the theme of today's training is document the details. The most important questions to answer on each and every call when documented are who, 
what, where, why, and how. In summary, we looked at the uh, dispatch and pre-arrival, important information that should be recording, recorded in, um, prior to the, you leaving for the call. What you're doing at the scene of the call should be documented, any interventions or assessments that were done. How was the patient during transport? As you loaded the patient in transport, was there any change in the patient's medical condition? Pain, mental status, anything that changed? How was the handoff at the destination? Did you move the patient safely from the ambulance to down the hall to room six and give the report to the nurse? If you did, please document that. Patient signature. If you can, did you obtain one? Obtain one. If not, does the patient have a family member or guardian who could have given you the signature? Demographics. Name, rank, serial number, folks. Date of birth, insurance information, correct address. These all need to be spelled out in order for your billing company to process your claims in a timely fashion. And lastly, your signatures. Make sure your signatures and your certification um, are included on each report as well too. And in the end, good clinical information typically equates to good billing information. And if you remember this and follow these key points that I mentioned to you today, chances are you're typing out writing out good clinical information, and hopefully in the end, you'll get paid for it because that's also credible billing information. Folks, thanks for your time today. I hope you enjoyed today's presentation. Uh, I wish each of you well, and please be safe out there.